Heavenly Father, we as your people wait on you. Our souls wait for you, O Lord, more than watchmen for the morning. Father, we wait for your Holy Spirit to bring your word to life in our hearts. And some of us are in the depths today. We're waiting for your Holy Spirit to return joy to us and for your smile to shine on us once again. And God, your hand is not short that it can't reach out and save. So Father, would you through your word today plunge into the depths and and rescue miserable sinners and take those who are rescued but feel like they're in the depths, Lord, and would you smile on them? Help them, Father. We wait for you. And Lord, those this morning who feel like they're on the top of the hill, who are walking in joy with you and in fellowship with you, they feel like they're in the city of God already because you're so close by to them. Lord, could you make them a help to the people who are in the depths through your word this morning? And Father, help us all look to you through your word. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Some of the more formative or impactful moments of my childhood took place in emergency rooms, waiting rooms. And in emergency rooms, you get a a pretty good range of different types of people from all different walks of life with different needs. And what all of those people have in common in the ER is that they're waiting. There's different active steps that they needed to take to get to their waiting, like they needed to drive to the ER, maybe call a friend to get them to the ER. They needed to check in. They needed to sit down. But... But they're all just waiting. I'll never forget one time when I was eight. um, I was at the ER for a broken arm, and I locked eyes with this elderly woman, and she was crying and and very obviously in really severe pain. And my child's eyes were opened up to the real deep suffering in the world, and her mind was probably taken back to youth before all of that suffering. And we didn't even look away from one another. And there were so many things that made that woman and I very different from each other, But there in that moment, we were both just waiting. And waiting is a huge theme of our psalm this morning. And so the focus here is waiting on the Lord from the depths. The psalm starts with, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And so the psalm explores, what's it look like to be in that place of the depths? What's it look like to wait on God from there? Well, what's it look like to wait on God together as his people And if you look above the psalm, just one verse, or above the first verse of the psalm, sorry, you'll notice a header there, and it says a psalm of ascents. We've been through a couple of these before, maybe a few. Um, Josh even preached on one a few weeks ago for us. But just to give us a fresh reminder and go through these sections of God's word again, the psalms of ascents are psalms that Israel would sing together and to one another as they ascended. And so these are sometimes called pilgrim songs, but but the point is they'd sing them together as they made their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill. It It was pretty much up from everywhere in Israel. And so they'd travel three times a year to the temple, and they'd be in the presence of God there. They'd partake in feasts or holy days that God had appointed to them. So, for example, one of these feasts that we're probably more familiar with than the other two is the Passover feast. So Israel once a year would go up the hill to the Passover feast to have a feast there and commemorate the time that God had saved them out of Egypt and brought them up from the depths of Egypt to a mountain to worship him by his side and in his presence. So so here's the point. Psalm 130, it starts in the depths, but it doesn't end there. And when we sing this song, and when they sang this song together, sorry, 
they were looking up together. They were singing it to one another and looking up towards a city on a hill. The whole journey from the depths up to Jerusalem was a journey, a walk, a pilgrimage towards God, a pilgrimage towards his presence and towards the forgiveness of sins. The psalm ends in verse 8. So it starts in verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O God, but it ends in verse 8 with he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So we start in the depths and we end with total assurance of salvation. And there's some waiting in between. But, but here's the big point. The psalm gives us a look at being in the depths, but the psalm doesn't give us permission to stay in the depths. The, the journey out of the depths, it might be long and difficult, and I'm not, I'm not rebuking you if you're in the depths and telling you that you need to be out right now. It's a process. But we don't have permission to stay there because of the trajectory of this psalm. And even though that journey can be long and difficult to get out of the depths, in this psalm we have a blueprint to get out of the depths. God hasn't left his people there. And the blueprint is looking to him. And I know that that is just so easy to say. Just look to God, you know. And I'm sure many of you who are in the depths or who have been in the depths are just probably absolutely sick of hearing that. I mean, if I'm honest, sometimes I get a little bit tired of hearing that. Look to God. It's okay. Just, just look to God. What, what does that even mean? Just look to God. And lots of times, well-meaning people who really do mean well, and there's so much truth in that statement, feels like it's just shallow advice sometimes, and we just feel like we're in the depths and alone with no help. So if you're one of those people who means well, but often you just say things like, well, just look to God, I'm praying for you. That's good. Keep doing that. Don't stop doing that. But this psalm has some good things to say to you too as well. So maybe you can be a little more helpful to people. Maybe you can be a little more uh, sensitive to people who are still in the depths. So we get both sides of the coin. The psalm here is, is very personal. You know, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. It's a personal psalm about personal anguish in the depths of someone's own soul, of personal sin. And yet, remember, we have to remember that this is a psalm of a sense. And so we realize again, Israel would have sung this to one another. And that gives us insight on waiting both alone and as a community together. So whether you're still in the depths or whether you're hoping to pull somebody up out of the depths or trust God's hand to do that as you walk with them, I hope that both people can be encouraged and helped this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through the text here, starting in verse 1, and we're going to look at those implications afterwards. Section 1 in your bulletins, the depths of sin. Psalm 30, 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And here's where we begin our journey up the hill, up towards the temple, crying out to God from the depths. And so what are these depths? Well, the word depths here in the Hebrew mind, it's speaking about the depths of the sea, the depths of being underwater. And the Hebrew people and the sea were not great friends. They, they much preferred the land as a people. And beyond that, think of all the connotations that would be in a Hebrew mind about the depths of the sea from their scriptures. You know, the depths carries this idea of, of chaos and judgment along with it. Think of Genesis where God brought order from the chaos of the depths of the sea. Or you think of the flood where God judged the entire world with water under, under the depths. Or you think of the exodus of Israel where God saved his people out of Egypt 
And they made it through the sea, a split in the sea, and yet God judged the Egyptians behind Israel with water, with the sea. Or Jonah, who when he sank into the sea, was descending into death. So this, this idea of the depths of the water has, has awful themes in the mind of an Israelite. And the thing about being in the sea, the thing about being that deep underwater in the depths, is that no one can hear you. If you're deep enough, no one can even see you. Have you ever swam? Um, Maybe some of you kids who have been to camp this summer have tried this. Don't try it again. But have you ever swam to the bottom of a lake just to see if you could touch the bottom? And you get there and you touch the bottom, and then you realize, oh, I don't think I took a big enough breath to get back to the top. And you kind of start to get a little bit panicky and and swimmy, and you try and get back to the top. But you didn't take a big enough breath. You're kind of panicking, and no matter how loud you were to scream, no one could help you. You're left to your own to get out of, out of the water there. And so the depths are sort of like that. You're desperate, you need help, and it seems like no matter how loud you scream, everything above the surface is unaware of you. Nobody can hear you. And this is where the psalmist is. At least it's where he feels like he is. In darkness, in chaos, being judged by God. He feels like he's under the wrath and the judgment of God. Even though he's up to the temple, going towards that trajectory, he doesn't taste it yet, and he's desperate, and he's drowning, and no matter what, no one can hear him or see him. Some of you this morning, you've already found a new favorite psalm, just from the first verse, because right now you feel that. You feel like you're in chaos, and you feel like nobody can hear you, and you might feel distant from God and his love. You might feel like you're under his condemnation, and You're in the depths. And this makes sense of our next verse here, where our psalmist isn't even certain that God can hear him. Verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you've been with us as we've gone through the Psalms this summer, this idea isn't new to you of crying out to God in this way. And still I want to make a plug here that I think we need to get more used to this idea, this form of praying, of crying out to God and kind of holding him to hearing us because he said he'd hear his people, to recognize that you're in the depths and to cry things out like, God, can you even hear me? Look at me, God. And what's the psalmist crying out for? For mercy. God, don't leave me here under judgment and in darkness. See my drowning and rescue me. God, nobody can hear me. I'm drowning, but surely you have to see me, God. Don't you? And notice it says the voice of my pleas for mercy. His pleas for mercy have their own voice. His cries, they're so unheard, they're so faint, they're so weak, they're so tired, that just his desire for mercy, his pleas for mercy, have taken on a voice of their own, and that's all that they can offer to God. So, here's where we start. In the depths, the bottom of the hill, drowning, begging for mercy. When's the last time you pleaded for mercy? When's the last time you you felt that weight from God and you felt like you needed to ask him to forgive you again? Like you weren't just good from your one time you talked to Jesus, but, but you needed his mercy again. Well, Maybe you'll be doing that or feeling that again soon after these next couple of verses. So let's move on to point two in your outline, the confession of sin. What we found in verse one and two 
was crying out from the misery of sin. What we find here in verse 3 is now the confession of sin. So in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The Hebrew Bible translation by Robert Alter says, Were you, O Yahweh, to watch, to watch for wrongdoings? O Master, who could endure? So God could watch for us to mess up. He could sit there and wait and watch for us to sin. And a lot of us know what it's like to have a boss who does that, a boss who's just watching and just waiting for you to mess up. When you have a heavy-handed boss like that, it it can be frustrating, it can be disheartening, but, but they're only human, and they usually don't catch all of your mistakes. I'm very thankful that they have not caught all of my mistakes, but... But God, if he were to look out for all of your mistakes, the judge of all the earth who sees every single thing, who wouldn't miss any of them, God, who has the power in his hand to cast into hell and to judge, and who would be just in doing so, God who sees all, if he were to watch out for your sins, to count them up, to look out for them, it wouldn't just be disheartening or annoying like like when a boss is doing it. It would be terrifying. Now imagine if God had a checklist and he marked down every sin that you had ever sinned down to your thoughts. Now imagine he brings your friends or your wife or your husband and he brings them to the stand for an interview and he marks down every sin that they report to him. And then he brings your kids and then he brings everybody else you know to the stand and even your co-workers too and he asks them of an account for all of your sins that they've seen and he marks all of those down too. And now imagine God puts it all on a projector screen, the whole list on a projector screen, your thoughts replayed, your actions replayed, everything in front of his throne and in front of the holy angels. Who could stand? Do any of you seriously think that you could stand? No, and we we all know that we couldn't stand. It's obvious to us. We could not stand before God's justice. And what's happening here, the reason this is a confession of sin, is the psalmist isn't looking at everybody else and going, Lord, they couldn't stand. He knows he's lumped in with this group of people who couldn't stand. The psalmist is saying to God, Lord, if you counted up my sins, I couldn't stand. And he probably has some specific sins in his head that play over and over and over that he's never felt forgiven of. But his sin is crystal clear in front of him. And for all the sins before him that he's haunted by, he knows that God can see all. And he knows that God can think of thousands and thousands more than just the ones the psalmist can call to mind and feel ashamed of. So no, no one can stand before the Lord. If he counted sins, who could stand? Nobody. The psalmist knows he's in that group. He doesn't stand a chance, and neither do we. And if we end here... This is where the psalm ends. We end in the depths. We end drowning in shame with God's face turned away from us. But look to verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. You can breathe a sigh of relief. This is where the tone of the psalm shifts. It's where the psalmist stops looking at himself, he stops swimming around in the depths. And he looks to who God is, a God who is forgiving, a God with whom there is forgiveness, who doesn't count sins. And notice what forgiveness is for here. You forgive, there's forgiveness with you so that you might be feared. 
so that he would be feared. That's what forgiveness is for. If you took a chunk of evangelical Christians today and you interviewed all of them and you said, what is God's forgiveness for? Give me a list of things that God's forgiveness is for. You'd hear a lot of different answers, but, but do you think on that list that you would hear fear so that we could fear him? Probably not. I remember one time Carson and I were talking to a family friend, and we were, we were lamenting to them, actually a close member of our family, and we were just uh, pouring out to them in, in sadness that one of our close friends was walking away from the Lord. They were apostatizing, and they were walking away from God with their actions. And this family friend said to us, well, you guys know that, that Jesus died and that God has forgiveness so that that person can live that way and they'll still be in heaven with God, right? Like, you guys know that, right? What a disgusting sentence. Like, what a, what a way to take the precious blood of Jesus and just trample it under your foot and make nothing of it and to just waste it and, and profane his name and his cross. God's mercy should not lead us to flippancy. God's mercy isn't just a punch ticket out of hell, but it should lead to reverence and awe and to a healthy fear. How can we betray him who has loved us so deeply? How could we even think of it? Like the thought should strike terror into our hearts. Makes me think of one of the early church fathers who when they were being persecuted for their faith, if they denied Christ, uh, they could have ended all of the suffering and they could have got down off of the stake and not been burnt. And they said, 86 years have I served him, and he's never done me any wrong. He's never shown anything but kindness. He's loved me. He's had forgiveness on me. How then can I betray my king? God's love leads to the fear of God. Back to the main point. There's forgiveness with God. There's forgiveness with God. And the implication here, okay, so think. If he marked every sin, then nobody could stand. We've covered that. And yet, there's forgiveness with him, and Israel is marching up the hill to Jerusalem to go to the temple to do what? To stand before him. So if God counted iniquities, no one can stand, and yet Israel's on their way to stand before him. Implication? God doesn't count the sins. God doesn't keep score. He's not counting up your sins. Micah 7.19 says that God tramples our sins under his foot, and he throws them into the sea. He throws them into the depths of the sea, and they're forgotten there. They'll never be brought back up again, and you stay on shore, and your sins go to drown where no one will ever see them again. God will never bring them up again. Cast into the sea of, forget of forgetfulness. And so, if you're in the depths, and you've sinned for the thousandth time, for the hundred thousandth time, for the millionth time, you can go to God. Now, I want to be balanced here because this is supposed to lead to a fear of the Lord. His forgiveness is meant to lead to purity and piety and fear. But know this. Just revel in this truth. Know this. If you're going to God for the thousandth time, millionth time, for God, it's like you're going to him for the first. None are righteous. No, not one. But there's forgiveness. Move with me into section three here, waiting for mercy. So we've seen that the psalmist is, is beginning to move out from the depths and into this hope because of who God is. And yet, we also see in the text here that he hasn't experienced the fullness of that hope yet, the, the joy from that salvation. In a sense, he's still waiting on it. And so, verse five, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. You hope for something that's not yet here, right? Who hopes for things seen? He's waiting. And, and now we should ask, 
If the psalmist knows that there's forgiveness with God, if God promised in his word in Leviticus that these offerings would bring atonement and forgiveness for Israel, it's sure, God has spoken. What's he waiting for? I mean, why can't he just revel in the forgiveness right now? What's still ahead of him? What's he waiting for? Well, there's a couple things maybe going on here. The first is that the psalmist could be waiting for God's promises and grace that are still in the future. His mercy showing up in his covenant keeping, in his promise keeping. Waiting on God to keep covenants, giving victory over their enemies, securing them in all of the land, not just portions of it, spiritual purity, holiness, all things God's promised Israel. And so there's one aspect of waiting for mercy there. But a little closer home to this psalm, here's another possibility. He knows there's forgiveness, but under the old covenant, how did God provide forgiveness of sins? What was God's big provision for the forgiveness of sins? It was sacrifices and offerings. And where are the people headed as they march up this hill? To the temple. And so he knows that God will be true to to his word. He knows that God will honor the sacrifice. It's certain to him. He knows that forgiveness is in the Passover lamb offered. And yet he's not at the top of the hill yet. He's not at the temple yet. He's not sitting down at the feast to taste the goodness of the the forgiveness that, that the sacrificial lamb brings. So mercy is sure, but it's, it's just at the top of the hill. It's just out of hand. And it's like he was climbing that hill to Jerusalem. He stopped looking at, at the depths. He stopped looking back, and he started looking ahead. And he can see the temple there. He can smell the incense from the temple. He can, he can feel the joy of the feast with his brothers and, and the full forgiveness. But it's just at the top of the hill. It's just quite not here yet. But it's coming. And then we get this beautiful illustration and this poetry in verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. In those times, there were watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. And the purpose of the watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem was they were supposed to stay there all night until morning came. And they were supposed to look out for anybody making an attack during the nighttime on the city. What the soldiers were really waiting for on this wall was the morning. They were really waiting for the sunrise because when morning came, they'd be safe from night sieges. Their shift was over. They could clock out. They could go home, catch a nap. But even more importantly, what did it mean when the sun rose? It meant there was another night of God's covenant keeping faithfulness to Israel. It meant they experienced another night of God's mercy. And so when that sun came over the horizon, they they felt the goodness of God's mercy gleaming on their face. Total dependence and total trust as they waited for his mercy to shine over the horizon the next morning. Waiting in darkness until the warmth of light hits your face. And the amazing part about this illustration is that it shows us that all of this salvation that Israel's waiting for, in the analogy and in the psalm and in everything, it's all the work of God. Okay, so the watchmen are waiting on the wall for the sun to rise. That's, that's their hope. Mercy from God through the sunrise. And yet, can the watchmen on the wall do anything to make that sunrise faster? They could, they could pull each one of their hairs out and they could count to a million backwards and they can't make the sunrise any faster. The sun is certain to rise, but they can't hurry it up. And Israel, can Israel hurry up God's promises? Can Israel move the arm of the Lord? No, God's going to keep his will. The Lord doesn't need remembrance. The Lord doesn't need his hand to be moved to keep his promises. God's going to keep his promises. And yet, there's often a period of waiting, sitting on the wall, waiting out a dark, cold night, and waiting for the sunrise of mercy. And who makes the sunrise? God. 
Who brings salvation? God. It's all him, and we're waiting on it, though. The cold night, it might take form as an exile. The cold night that Israel has to wait through, it might take form as an as a inner wrestling, as being in the depths of your own soul and your own sin. But there's a night to wait through, and Israel has to wait. Either way, in any case, mercy is more certain than a sunrise. God's promises and God's mercy is a better promise. It's more sure than you seeing the sunrise tomorrow. And so that leads us to section four, the assurance of mercy. So by looking at who God is, we've moved up the hill, we're moving out of the depths, and we're getting close to the assurance, the full assurance and joy of salvation, and the sunrise is almost here. And the psalmist takes this assurance that he's experiencing within his own heart. Lord, I've waited for you like a watchman for the morning. He knows the mercy's coming. And now that his hope in God is building, he, he shares it with the rest of the people as they're climbing and making this pilgrimage. He shares it with them and encourages them to hope in God too. Maybe there's some scragglers still lower on the hill. It's like he's looking back and saying to them, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Haven't we seen this steadfast love, Israel, in Noah and in our father Abraham and in Moses? That's assurance. That's assurance. And this shows us that this assurance, this journey out of the depths, is something we do together. And they're sure he'll redeem Israel from all of his iniquities, not just most of them. Uh, recently, my grandma, her battle with cancer ended, but one of the things when her cancer was kind of fading and coming back and fading and coming back was when she was in remission and when her cancer was gone, she'd go and do tests. And all of these tests brought her in because they were to see if the cancer was all gone, if the doctors got all of it. And so she would be anxious at these tests. But Israel, the people of God, they don't need to be anxious. The good doctor got It's all gone. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. So what do we see in this psalm? Well, we started in the depths of sin and of shame, but we've looked towards God, and we've climbed the hill, and we end in total assurance of salvation and hope. And why? Because we have a God who's forgiving. We have a God who's not counting sin. We don't have a God who's keeping a tally of Israel's sin and he's going to do something about it. We have a God who throws him into the sea of forgetfulness and he lets Israel come up the hill towards him to be in his presence. That's why. And this leaves a massive, massive question, a massive hole here that needs answering. Look to your next section, All Sins Marked, in your bulletin. And why do I label all sins marked? Jordan, didn't we just rejoice in the fact that God doesn't mark any sins? God forgets all of Israel's sins. They're in the sea of forgetfulness. So why are you titling the section, All Sins Marked? Well, let me read to you from Exodus 34, 6-9, and you tell me if God marks sins or not. The Lord passed before him, Moses. So this is God's revelation of himself to Moses. A lot of theologians think this is one of the clearest in the Old Testament uh, revelations of who God is. So here's who God is. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving 
iniquity, forgiving, iniquity and transgression and sin, not remembering them. Great, that's great so far. That's exactly what we've been seeing in our song. And yet, continue in verse 7, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He won't clear the guilty. He won't forget sins. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So does God forgive sin or not? Does he remember sins or does he not? Does he count sins or does God not count sins? Proverbs 17, 15 says that it's an abomination. It's, just, it's an abomination when somebody justifies the ungodly. So how could God get away with an abomination? Turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. Go to Romans 3, please. And start in verse 21. I'll give you a moment. How does God forget sins, and how does God mark all of the sins, even to the third and fourth generation? Well, Paul reveals a mystery here for us, verse 21. But now, now that Christ has come, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's come to us. It's appeared apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this is to say that God's going to do something. God's done something to show that he is still righteous, even though he doesn't count your sins. And he's doing it apart from the law. So whatever God's plan here is, whatever he's doing, however the righteousness of God is revealed, it doesn't involve your law keeping. It doesn't depend on you keeping the law. And so his righteousness and his justice are being displayed to the world somehow without our goodness. Verse 22, the righteousness of God given to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And so how does God not mark those sins? How does God not trample underfoot those who fall short of his glory? You've got sins that need to be counted or else God's unjust. I've got sins that need to be counted or else God's unjust. Everybody falls short. But verse 24 are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how? How, Paul? How are we justified and God is still just? Verse 25, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a pleasing satisfaction for his wrath, as a sacrifice, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his patience, in his patience with David, with Moses, with the psalmist here, with Adam, in his patience, he had passed over former sins. He didn't count them. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the juster of the one who believes in Christ Jesus, so that he might count all sins and not count the sins of the one who believes in Jesus Christ. So how does God show that he is just and not count our sins? Well, well, he was counting them. He was counting every single sin. He had a list. He counted the psalmist's sins. He counted David's sins. He counted up Moses' sins. He counted up Adam's sins. He counted every sin. And he saved up the wrath for those sins in a bowl. And when Christ came and was displayed to the world as God's righteousness, 
God took that bowl and he poured it on the head of Christ while Jesus was on the cross. And nothing, not one sin was left uncounted or just swept under the rug. Jesus was put forth for the whole world to see. This was God's great display. This was God's final statement. And the cross was God's clear and final declaration of the world that God marks every sin. None are unmarked. God is not unjust that he does not mark sins. He he doesn't let anything slide so that if anyone would accuse God of being unjust for not counting the psalmist's sins, if anyone would tell God that he's not just for looking over your sins, Jesus was God's statement. Point to the cross, look, God counts every sin. So yes, your sins, my sins, they're thrown into the sea. They're cast into the sea away from us. But they didn't get just thrown into any old sea and forgotten about. And God looked away and pretended that they never existed. You know the sea that God threw your sins into? He took them from you and he threw them into the depths. The depths that we've been looking at. Into the sea of chaos and judgment and wrath. And Romans 3 tells us a mystery. Here's the mystery. The mystery is that when God was casting sins into that sea... Jesus was in that sea. And every time a sin was cast into the sea, the sea got darker, the waters became heavier, the waves crashed harder, and Jesus sank deeper. And as he sank deeper and deeper, Jesus cried out with the true voice of the psalmist, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And just like someone drowning below the surface, Jesus' voice was not heard by the Father. My God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, hear my voice. And do you know what Jesus heard back? Nothing. He was left alone in that sea and he drowned. Jesus did not just throw you a life raft. Jesus pulled you from the bottom of that sea and Jesus brought you safely to shore and Jesus fixed you and planted you there and made sure that you were dry and safe and Jesus turned around and Jesus swam back into that sea himself and Jesus dealt with the waves. And what an awful sea it must have been. How deep Jesus must have been to not even feel the the face of God shining on him, to not even feel the Father's joy that he had felt for eternity. This is foreign to him. He's never felt this separation before. And now he's in the depths where no ray of sunlight can pierce through. And no joy can be found for him. And no mercy and no call back to him when he cries from the depths. Wrapped up in death, he descended into death. But on the third day, Just like when the sun bursts over the horizon, just like when the dawn breaks, just like when watchmen look out for the morning and they're watching for it, Jesus came up out of the sea. Jesus came up out of the depths. He came up out of the grave. He rose again and the sea was cast into hell forever. So so no longer, no more does the sea of judgment and of chaos exist for me or for you or for Jesus. He rose, he trampled over it and the sea was cast into hell 
And Jesus waited through the night for the Father's hand to save him, and the Father's hand did save him. On the third day, the Father's hand did raise Jesus from the dead, and the morning did come for Jesus. And so Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it's like to wait from the depths. Jesus knows what it's like to cry out and to not be heard. And so he has compassion on those who call to him from the depths. He's been there, and he's made a way out of the depths through his blood. The journey up the hill in Psalm 130, because God doesn't count sins, the journey out of the depths was bought with blood. And so if you have any right to cry out to the Lord, if you have any permission or right to cry this psalm out with the psalmist and pray like this to God, it's through Jesus. It's because Jesus, the true voice of the psalmist, has went to the depths for you and made a way out. So, does God count sins? Absolutely, yes, every single one. God counts every sin and marks all of them. Does God count sins? Nope, absolutely not. None of them, zero. As far as you're concerned, if you believe in Jesus this morning, God forgets them. He counts none of them. All of them were marked on Christ. All of them, everything, so that none of them would have to be marked on you. Now we look how to wait together. Our last section is waiting together. And if what we just looked at is true, if salvation in Jesus is so full and so total and so free, what's there to wait for? If we're in this new covenant era, if we've seen the cross and the resurrection and the sun's already burst over the horizon, what is there to wait for? How can you as a New Testament believer cry out with the psalmist, my soul waits for the Lord? Well, there's two things that we need to wait for as believers that I'm going to bring attention to. The first is for assurance. You still need to wait for assurance sometimes. And the the other thing you're going to need to wait for is the Lord's return. And so first, let's look at assurance. How does this psalm tell us to get assurance? How do we help one another with assurance? Well, I think we've seen pretty clearly from Psalm 130 that that we can and we should be confident that Israel will be saved from all of his iniquities, that God will be faithful and save his people. So Psalm 30 charges us with assurance. We need to have assurance. And yet I also think we've seen from Psalm 130, and I think we've also just experienced from life experience, uh, sometimes we're in the depths and we don't feel that assurance And it doesn't feel like God's coming for his people. And it doesn't feel like he'll redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It felt like your iniquities were maybe forgotten on the shore and everybody else has got to get cast into the sea. Sometimes we're in the depths and it feels like no one can hear us. We're stuck in shame. We're stuck in darkness. We have doubts. We have fears if if any of this is really real or not. And we feel like we're under the judgment of God and we really don't know if he loves us after everything that we've done. So there's this tension between being sure and our weakness when it doesn't feel like it's sure, when we don't feel God's love towards us. So think of the illustration with me of the watchman waiting for the morning on the wall. The sun will rise, sureness, surety, Assurance of salvation. The sun's going to rise. 
And yet, you have to wait. You have to wait through the cold night until you can feel the rays of the sun hit your face and bring warmth. That's an experience. That feels like something. You ever wait up all night for the sun to rise? I have. It's just waiting and waiting, and then and it's amazing. You can, you can feel the warmth on your face. The sun comes, and it causes vegetation to grow and life to grow and fruits to grow, and that's going to happen. That's, that's pretty certain. And you got to wait through the night to get there. So yeah, there's, there's sureness with the Lord, and there's waiting for that sunrise. For anyone who believes in Jesus, salvation, again, is, is more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. And yet again, we often have that midnight wrestle or that wrestling in your heart at work, and you want to talk to someone about it, but you can't because you've got a job to do, or that wrestling in your heart in the car on the way to somewhere, or that wrestling in anything where you just feel forgotten, you feel condemned by God. And you're waiting and wrestling with this experience of assurance to feel God's smile shining on you, wrestling without shame's apathy. So what's our roadmap out of the depths? What's our roadmap from the depths to assurance? According to Psalm 130, it's looking to God. Now again, I know it's just tired to hear, look to God. And so I want to unpack that for you a little bit so that maybe next time somebody says that to you, instead of being cynical, you can kind of just call this to mind and, and remember all that could mean for you. And maybe next time you want to just say that to somebody, you could maybe say a little more. So first, it looks like finding promises from God's word and just latching onto them and just not letting them go. The author said in the psalm, uh, my soul waits for the Lord and in his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. You need to find what's true about God and what's true about you from the scriptures and you need to latch onto that and you need to wrestle with it and you can't let it go if you're in the depths. You need that so that you don't believe the lies that keep you in the depths. So find some scriptures, make them your own and believe them. And if you can't, just, just keep praying to believe them. For me, it's been John six thirty seven. All who the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Jesus' voice there has gotten me through so many midnights. Jesus' voice there has assured me through so many doubts. That's it for me. You're going you're gonna to have to search the scriptures and be in the scriptures daily for daily water, for daily bread, and you're going to have to find the voice of your God through his word to bring you sureness. And I don't know why, I don't know why the Holy Spirit decides to come when he comes, but you latch on to those promises and you pray them and you believe them and eventually, like a sunrise, the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirits that we're son with, sons, sons of God. And so if you're a watchman waiting for the morning, staying in God's word, it's not everything, it is a huge thing, and it's like fortifying the walls so that if somebody wants to come and attack your city, the walls are fortified. That's what staying in the word of God does. So as you're waiting, as you're waiting to feel the joy from the Father, as you're waiting to feel God's face shining on you again, staying in God's word makes the walls of your city strong so that if the flesh, so that if the world, so that if the devil wants to make an attack on you, you're safe. You've got something between you and the world, between you and your lies that you made up in your own hand, between you and the flesh, between you and lies. And pray, pray like crazy. I mean, aren't all of the Psalms prayers? Isn't this the Psalm crying out to the Lord to hear his voice? Look to what's certain and pray. So look to Jesus' cross and resurrection as the sure sunrise of mercy and beg the Holy Spirit to help you feel the rays on your face of that sunrise. 
pray. And you can't do this alone. Remember Israel sang this song together to one another as they climbed the hill together, not alone. And the people would sing to each other from verse 8, from verse 7, sorry. O Israel, hope in the Lord. They'd say that to each other. They were singing to one another, pointing one another out of the depths and to God. You need to hear encouragement from God's people. You need that. You can't make this pilgrimage alone. You're not going to make it up the hill. So if you're in the depths, if you're struggling with doubt or fears or sin, tell somebody. Tell someone about your sin. Tell somebody about your doubts. We all have doubts. Tell somebody about your fears. Share it with somebody so that you can be encouraged by others around you. This is a community effort, and you see that in this psalm. So if you're in the depths, don't, don't go it alone. Please don't go it alone. Come talk to somebody after the service for prayer. Talk to somebody who sits beside you for prayer, but just don't go it alone. We're all marching up the same hill, and we're all going towards the temple, and we all need that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Nobody goes this alone. And if you know someone in the depths, don't let them go it alone. They've got a responsibility to call out. You've got a responsibility to watch out. Once the author made it out of his misery... He used his assurance, and he didn't keep it to himself. He didn't keep his joy to himself. But what'd he do? Oh, Israel, you, you, down the hill, hope in the Lord. So if you know someone in the depths, don't let them go it alone. So instead of just trying to say, well, just be more thankful, or, or oh, just look to God. If you don't want to leave someone in the depths, why not try saying something like, hey, I've been there before. I know that can be really difficult. I don't understand exactly, but I, I kind of get it. Do you want to go for coffee sometime and talk about that? Bear your brother's burdens. Make it your problem. Imagine it like we're walking up the hill, but we're locked arms. You don't get there. No man left behind. Sit on the wall with them like watchmen waiting for the morning, and don't leave their side until the sunrise comes. Keep up with them. Reach out to them. Keep, keep current with them. Hey, how are you doing this week? Are you still okay? Are you doing any better than last week? Don't just hit them in the head with a Bible. You need the Bible, but don't just hit him in the head with one. Live out Christ's love before them. We're all in different places, but we're in this together. And until the Lord returns with the fullness of salvation, we'll be in and out of the depths. And that makes us all waiters, waiting on the full and the final joy of salvation from God when Jesus brings it in his hand when he returns. Let me read to you, finally, from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And get this, and the sea was no more. What does it mean that the sea is no more? Well, there's, there's probably a few things that that means, but whatever else it means, it means this. No more depths. The depths are gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the temple of God, is with man, and he'll dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, 
nor crying, nor pain, nor doubts, nor wrestlings at midnight, nor condemnation. For the former things have passed away. So people of God, don't give up. Keep encouraging one another. Keep moving up that hill towards that holy city, towards that new Jerusalem together. We're marching up that hill towards the new temple, towards God's presence. That's where we're going. And don't look back to the depths. Don't look back on your shame or sin. Look to Jesus. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, what a proclamation of your justice and mercy we have in the cross. And what a vouchsafe, what a certain promise when Jesus rose again of that new city. Lord, we're waiting. Lord, we cry out to you, come Lord Jesus. We're waiting together, God. And in an even more finite way, Lord, some of us are waiting to, to believe that that's true. That you are coming again with our reward in your hands, Lord, bring us as a people out of the depths towards your side and bring us as individuals out of those places of doubt and of sorrow, out of those depths too, Lord. Reach out your hand and save through the cross. And God, would you help us to help one another with this? Lord, would you bring all of your sons into your kingdom and we know you will, Father, and would you use us to do it So, Lord, we pray if anyone's in the depths this morning, Lord, that they would make it known and and that we would search it out as a people, that we would be diligent, that they would be vulnerable. God, as we make our pilgrimage towards your side, bless us, Father. Bring strength to our knees, lest we fall back down the hill. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.